This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. All of a sudden, I heard a loud crack. I think the airplane must have, you know, shook or shattered, but I hadn't felt that. In spite of being at full power and having headphones, I just heard this very loud crack. So the next thing, you know, you're startled and you wonder what has just happened. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Merrick Fatiga. Merrick started flying gliders at the age of 15 in Poland. He got his license at 16 and was on the junior national team, flew about 600 hours in gliders in Poland, and then came to the U.S. He started flying on Long Island in 172s, got his license there, then moved to Chicago, upgraded to a commercial license out of DuPage County Airport. And over the years, he's flown Cessnas, Pipers, Diamonds, a little bit of Cubs and Citabria, Great Lakes, even a couple hours flying at Pitts. Today, his home is Phoenix, Arizona. But today, he's going to share with us a story where he survived a CFIT controlled flight into terrain at night at Hanover County Airport near Richmond, Virginia. Mirak, welcome to the There I Was podcast. Well, thank you. Your background is so interesting. You started flying in Poland, uh, gliders, and then you moved into a powered flight. For the flight that you are going to talk to us about today, you were flying a Technum LSA, right? Yes, that's correct. So if you don't mind, Merrick, share the story with us. Set it up for us. What were you doing? How'd you get in an LSA? And what were you doing that night? Right. So I'm flying as what you would call a weekend warrior. I never bought an airplane. I was always renting. So I was living in Richmond, Virginia, and renting from local FBOs. And for a couple of years, I was flying uh, to see Diamond, the 20 I think, which was an airplane I liked very much. But then, you know, things happened economically, and the FBO from which I was renting either went under or got acquired by a neighboring FBO. And I discovered then that that FBO actually was also, might still be, that was 10 years ago, uh, a distributor of Technam airplanes, and they were willing to rent them. So I was wondering what would be the next airplane I would fly. And I called them, and I set up the uh, checkout ride. 
and it was just some another airplane that I wanted to fly on weekends, something new. So I got a checkout with an instructor, and the checkout was very uneventful. In fact, I would sometimes think of it as one of the most perfunctory checkout rides I ever had. Just flew a few patterns, uh, maybe probably did a couple stalls, and that was it. Uh, the airplane seemed like a very nice airplane to fly, uh, very responsive. Uh, the only thing I noticed on the checkout that actually will be relevant to the rest of the story was that it was September, middle of September, early afternoon, and we flew to a thermal on a climb out, and the airplane basically stopped climbing. I made at full power. I kind of pointed it out to the instructor, and it's kind of a young fellow. He sat his shoulders and said, well, you know, that's an LSA. Other than that, it was a very nice airplane to fly, uh, and it had very advanced avionics for the time. Uh, It wasn't G-1000, but something similar to G-1000. Those light sports, uh, right off the bat, the comment, you know, uh, from the instructor, uh, you know, shrugged and said, well, it's a it's a light sport. GA pilots can get themselves in trouble because they have that mindset. They said, ah, it's only a light sport. You know, I'm used to flying heavier, more powerful things. You know, this should be a piece of cake. When in fact, light sports uh, can get pretty dicey because they are so light and most of them tend to be pretty sensitive in pitch and they move around a lot with just the slightest bit of wind, especially on landing. So I've found light sports, even if you're flying a tricycle light sport aircraft, they demand your attention on landing because of the way they get moved around in the wind. So they're not to be taken lightly. And in fact, most light sports that uh, accidents that happen, the light sports that get banged up, predominantly they're banged up by people with regular pilot's license. Yes, you, you actually almost told my story. so let me me continue here so it it was a very enjoyable airplane to fly and since I started in gliders it was even more enjoyable because it behaved a lot like a glider would Mm -hmm. so I flew it for a couple of months my normal flying would be take an airplane and fly to some nearby airport maybe do a touch and go come back just enjoy being up and usually what I would do in a new airplane is after a couple of months of flying I would do a session of night flying just to familiarize myself with how to land the airplane and what the airplane was like flown at night. So I scheduled a session of about one hour session of flying patterns at Hanover County on runway 34. I picked basically a calm night. We were, if I recall, uh, in the middle of a high pressure and went on flying. I had no problems. The night was really calm. The only thing I didn't like about the airplanes because it was so small, the landing light was useless. Worse than useless because it was putting a lot of light into the cockpit. So I turned it off half way through it and just flew without the light. But other than that, I mean, I was landing just fine. And I was very pleased with myself, in fact. So, you know, now one of the leftovers from that night is every time I'm too pleased with myself, I do an extra instrument scan or, or look around, you know, if I'm about to hit somebody. So at any rate, I finally decided I was done. It was my last pattern. And on uh, base to final, the airplane suddenly shook with turbulence. I noticed it because it was such a calm night otherwise. 
Were you doing left-hand patterns or right-hand patterns? You were landing runway 3-4 at Hanover County, right? Yes, so I was doing left-hand patterns. And I was also, you know, because of my glider background, I tend to do tight patterns. So uh, this airplane has what you would say trouble coming down, meaning even in full flaps and with power completely off, it wants to fly. It, it doesn't want to come down. So what I was doing was I was cutting the power, a beam, the threshold roughly, and doing a tight pattern with power off, which was part of the trouble in retrospect, a tight pattern with power off and landing on the threshold. And it was all working out very well. I mean, I was landing close to the threshold. I had no problem. Occasionally, I had to slip because the airplane was not coming down as I would be used to. But that was fine because it's a very light airplane. I'm good doing slips. So it was no problem. In most light sport airplanes that I've flown, that is an issue, is being able to get yourself on speed on final and carrying too much speed is a problem because it'll float, it'll balloon, you can get into porpoising on landing. So that is one of the challenges of light sport flying is getting down to the approach speed on final, not flying it too fast. Yeah, so then, you know, I noticed that light turbulence, but it went away. I got on final, everything was fine. You know, the lights, all I could see in front of me essentially were the runway lights, and they were in the right place. I was on glide slope. Uh, There was no Vasi on that runway, if I remember, but that didn't bother me very much because it was, you know, maybe 10th landing of the night. I felt I had it nailed. And then all of a sudden, the airplane shook again, and to use a proverbial, maybe little term, the bottom fell out of the airplane. Or I dropped like a stone. You know, I was watching the runway lights and all of a sudden I was in the elevator moving down. So I applied full power. I started recovering. I could see the runway lights ahead of me, you know, beginning to move back down as I, I at least leveled. You know, this all happened fairly fast. I think I was beginning to climb out. And then all of a sudden I heard a loud crack. I think the airplane must have, you know, shook or shattered, but I hadn't felt that. In spite of being at full power and having headphones, I just heard this very loud crack. So the next thing, you know, you're startled and you wonder what has just happened. I noticed that the airplane was still flying. So I wasn't pitching, I wasn't rolling, I was still flying, so that was good. You know, it took me a couple of seconds to acknowledge that I must have hit something or something has hit me because what else could have happened to make this sound? So my thought actually was that maybe I got so low because of this upset that I hit a fence. There was a fence at the edge of the uh, airport. That light now suddenly came useful. I turned it on and I looked at my side of the airplane and it seemed like I still had an intact wheel. So then finally I had to decide what to do. It kind of crossed my mind to go around, but then I think I decided that it was pointless. You know, the nearest towered airport was 20 miles away. Richmond Airport was pitch dark. So I said, you know, something might fall off of this airplane. I don't know what what just happened. I'm still flying, so I'm going to try to put it on the ground. All of this took 
thinking took a few seconds because you know, the runway was coming. I was still moving forward. So I tried to put it on my wheel, you know, the wheel that I knew was still good. And to my great relief, the airplane just landed. I taxied back to the hangar. Of course, my relief ended <laughs> because it became clear pretty quickly that I hit the tree. And the reason it became clear was that the uh, wing panels on both sides of the fuselage were, were dented. The horizontal stabilizer was dented. And there were twigs sticking out of you know, this airplane in, in various places. I also noticed that I was slightly injured. It wasn't you know, a big deal injury. But my right hand, which was on the throttle, looked like somebody cut it with the razor or something. So to make this story short, you know, what I figured out happened was that I flew through a branch at the top of the tree that was between me and the runway. Uh, probably at about 30 feet, between 30 and 50 feet, it was a fairly tall tree. I flew through a branch that was in the shape of a letter V. Uh, this was a technum, the high wing technum, so it had a fairly narrow fuselage. The fuselage must have fit right in the middle of the V. And then the wings cracked both branches, so they dented the wings, and as they were sliding back, they dented the uh, horizontal stabilizer. And then one of these branches, as it was sliding along the fuselage, the vent was just a bubble sticking out of the passenger side window. It smashed this bubble and turned it into a stream of shards. And that's what injured my hand. And it was superficial injuries. I didn't even go to the doctor. I just let it heal. So pretty much this was you know, what happened uh, during the night. I talked to the uh, operator of the airplane. And they were aware of what you are aware of, what you already said at, during this podcast about the properties of the LSA. They did not want to publicize this. That's my impression even today. They told me to go home. They said they would submit it to insurance and write a report for the NASA database. I always forget the acronym. ASRS reports. Yes, which was what I did. And then, you know, I pulled out the SARs and I was I was reading what constitutes a reportable accident. And I was kind of in a gray zone there because, you know, nobody got, got hurt really. I was alone. And I think the question there, again, it's 10 years later, was whether the airplane was uh, damaged enough. What was the extent of the damage to the airplane? I don't remember the verdict anymore. At any rate, uh, it became irrelevant because, you know, I think I got ensnared a little bit in the local airport politics. That's my impression now. You know, the tree that I hit, I think, was the object of contention and the heated dispute between the property owner on the approach to Round 34 and people at the airport. So somebody called the FAA and the inspector came by, looked at the airplane and promoted it to an accident. So I had to fly uh, a re-examination flight from, with night landings with him. And I had to fill an NTSB report. And that actually, you know, produced a very useful and kind of illuminating tidbit of information. Because when I filled that NTSB report, 
it asks you pretty detailed questions about the weather. So from my point of view, it was a clear night, but it asks you, you know, about cloud coverage and so on. And I said, I didn't remember whether there was maybe some high clouds. So I started Googling. Uh, Google was already there or, or, or some other uh, search engine. And what I found out was that actually Hanover County had an automated weather station and it was creating logs. And you could access these logs through the internet. And it had a five-minute series and one-minute series. And I happened to have written down the time of landing, which I would normally not do. I don't know why I did this. So I was pretty sure I knew when my landing occurred. And I found in this log exactly the time of my accident. What I found was that it was indeed a calm night, but every hour or two, something was coming through. And it was producing about five knot crosswind across the runway. And people disbelieve me when I say that five knot surface wind can do this. But actually, I was there. So I know that five knot surface wind did that. That's what brought me down. You know, at that time, at least, there was a line of trees that I was flying along. So you would approach over a patch of woods that was thinning out towards the runway threshold, and you would fly along the line of trees. And my best explanation was that this was a mechanical turbulence. I'm sure there might have been more, maybe even significantly more than five knots of winds at a couple hundred feet. But this little wind, this disturbance in the middle of otherwise calm night produced something that I have never seen before in my life. You know, I've seen upsets like this in my glider flying, in my power flying, but this would be in a strong wind, in turbulence where, you, you know, you would be hanging under for your dear life at high power, high above the runway. So anyway, this really kind of concludes the story of the event itself. Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Merrick, thank you for sharing that with us. I want to go back a little bit uh, and make sure I understand it. So you were on short final, and this was your last pattern in landing. You had done several. You're at night, but you had good visibility with the runway, and you felt like it was a normal glide path. There's no vasi or no pappy. How was your visibility? What were you using as your reference for your glide path? Basically, the runway lights, the runway threshold. So... You know, I knew where the runway threshold should have been uh, to the airplane. My speed was normal. There was a lit house below me, but that wasn't, you know, it was just there. That was the, the house with the property owner who was this contentious person. So basically, you know, I knew where the runway threshold light should be relative to me in order to put the airplane on the threshold. Do you think it, there's a potential of night visual illusion there where either the lighting from the house below or glare from the lights inside your cockpit or 
Do you think that was a potential there, that perhaps you got lower than you thought you were due to some kind of visual illusion? All I can say is I cannot guarantee where I was. I don't remember the readout of the uh, altitude. I think this was the same pattern as all the other patterns before. The only difference between this pattern and all the patterns before was that upset, which was, from my point of view, fairly intense. I've seen upsets like this before, as I say, you know, I've flown in strong winds and in strong turbulence, but they would be associated with something that you would be forewarned about. So could I have gotten a little too low on that pattern? I cannot exclude it in the final analysis. When you hit the first time that you felt the impact, about how far do you think you were from the runway threshold? A mile, would you say? or I think the tree was probably about half a mile to three quarters of a mile. You know, whatever happened there, I got really low because I found the tree, you know, a couple of days later. And I could not approach the tree because of the property owner. So I had to use like a small binoculars, but I believe I found the branch because I saw on the top of the tree, freshly broken, you know, the wood was still fresh. You know, if I wanted to scare myself all over again, I would go and, and imagine that airplane at night hmm. uh, at the altitude of the top of the tree, because it couldn't have been more than 50 feet. So going back to trying to uh, assess what happened, you don't think it was visual illusion. You had pretty good visibility and you had done several patterns uh, successfully, but you can't rule it out because it's hard to know for certain. What do you think the potential is that you just got too slow on final and stalled it into that tree, and, and the first time you felt it, you, you know, you had recovered from the stall, and the second time you kind of stalled it in the tree? Do you think that was a potential, or did you feel good about your airspeed control? No, I think my airspeed was good. And, you know, the reason that I can say this with confidence is that this airplane had integrated primary flight display. So actually the airspeed and the altitude were right in front of my face. So it's not like I could have gotten distracted and you know I would have to look somewhere and maybe the light wasn't very good in the cockpit. It was right in front of my nose what the speed was and what the altitude was. People ask these questions and rightly so. You know, these are the things that you have to ask, you know, very, very early in my flying career, when I had about 25 hours or so, or 30 hours, I was doing my second landing in the field in the glider. You know, in the glider, you do them quite often. And I nearly killed myself by crossing controls. Uh, That was almost 50 years ago. So this is a very legitimate question, but I don't think that's what happened. You know, I was flying wing level, I wasn't stretching anything. I was flying one of these patterns, you know, when when I'm actually every so often having to slip before I get to the runway if I want to put it on a threshold. So I don't think so. I know that this is a legitimate question to ask. I really think that what brought me down was the turbulence. That's why I'm telling the story because otherwise it would be just the story of a guy that got distracted and stalled into the tree. (laughs) So I believe in aviation, we've done so well and we've dropped our fatal accident rate by more than 50% since the mid-90s in general aviation. 
precisely because of people like you that look at the situation and they're willing to step back and take a candid, objective look and say, yeah, but why? And we just keep peeling those layers back until we're comfortable we got to the root cause. And in this case, there's so many factors here. You have the potential for visual illusion, but it seems unlikely given your situation. And it does reinforce the influence that even small wind has on light sport aircraft. And for people that haven't flown them, be careful when you do and don't take it lightly because uh, they do move around a little more. They're very much like flying a tail dragger. You've got to stay with it all the way through the landing, very pitch sensitive uh, as you come down both on takeoff and landing. And then in my mind, Merrick, it also reinforces the value of a Pappy and a Vazzy system because you would have been able to use that as backup. And of course, in the more modern avionics we have, you can use visual approaches. You know, now with some of the Garmin systems, uh, most of the more modern ones have a visual approach that you can dial in. And those things are quite helpful for your glide slope cross-check. It sort of reinforces some of the technology we put in place over the years that's helped us through these kinds of situations. It's definitely true. You know, I also... uh, I haven't flown light sport in 10 years, even though the FPO that I'm renting from right now had one for a while. But, you know, I'm flying in the mountains now. So after this experience, I just decided that I probably don't want to fly light sport in the mountains. I know some people do. But, you know, if somebody asked me today how to avoid what happened to me, that would be pretty clear to me. I would never land this airplane on the threshold unless I had to. Yeah, that's another great learning point is instead of putting it on the threshold, especially at night, give yourself a little bit more leeway and on a light sport, you know, that you can roll out and land and, you know, just a couple hundred feet. So it's not like you need a lot of runway. So put a little bit underneath you at night. Man, that's that's a great learning point as well. I made an assumption that I was flying another light airplane. And as you noted, uh, I found an article after that accident saying that the accident rate in LSAs was about twice as high as in general aviation. And it wasn't people who were trained on LSAs who had this higher accident rate. Their accident rate was similar to general aviation. It was people like me. I fit that profile almost exactly. Somebody transitioning from the heavier airplane that made an assumption this is just another general aviation aircraft and getting into trouble. So Another option, if you land and you know that you have obstacles in a short runway, is level off, fly at high power. You know, I, it took me a couple of seconds to bring that full power back when that upset happened, and then slip if you really have to get into a, a tight runway because these airplanes slip very nicely. They're very maneuverable. So there are ways to avoid what happened to me, but you have to know it. <laughs> <laughs> like like so much in aviation, which is why we do these things, if you can anticipate it, you can plan for it. What typically catches us is the things that we didn't anticipate. You mentioned another thing that I thought was interesting that may be uh, worth emphasizing for our audience, and that is the ASRS reporting, the um, Aviation Safety Reporting System. Those things can help you avoid some enforcement action but not necessarily compliance action, which isn't a bad thing. And the difference is, of course, enforcement usually is punitive in nature. Compliance usually is more 
learning in nature, where the FAA is really interested in you going back and learning what you did wrong, taking some training. Oftentimes, they'll send people to Air Safety Institute website. And so ASRS reporting is really valuable to do for both those reasons. Yes. In my case, you know, it, it was something that happened to me for the first time. I wasn't even aware of the database. So I think it was a, a good people there who, on one hand, did not want bad publicity for Technum, and on the other hand, wanted to protect me. And now that I'm aware, you know, if something kind of marginal happened to me, I, I would go and uh, submit. Yeah, in the Air Safety Institute, we learned that in GA, we submit some 1,500 ASRS reports a month, but there's not a lot of funding in NASA to analyze those reports. So we in the Air Safety Institute are partnering with UC Davis, their big data group there, to analyze some ASRS reporting, and we hope to see some results of that uh, later this year. But the other thing that was interesting that you brought up is the whole gray area of NTSB reporting criteria. Is it a reportable incident or is it not? And Tim LeBaron from the NTSB gives a good talk on this. But you're required to report it if someone on board suffers serious injury or, of course, if they perish, if they lose their life, or where the aircraft suffers substantial damage. And what constitutes substantial is very much a gray area. So we will often tell people, if you're part of the AOPA pilot protection program, the first thing you should do is reach out and call AOPA get in touch with your lawyer through that PPL program and advise them of the situation, and they'll give you some good advice on whether or not it's reportable or not. But in this case, you know, somebody reported it for you to the FAA, and then the process went in place, which I've found often can happen as well. Yes, I, you know, I had to fly a re-examination flight, which was actually a small story within the story. <laughs> <laughs> so what an interesting story going out to just do some pleasant recurrent training and refresher training at night, keep your currency up, very nice light sport airplane with good avionics in it, a nice night to do it with low winds, but this occasional little uh, trickle that comes through and sure enough, you know, may very well have caused you an incident there. And we're so fortunate that you went right through the middle of those branches and not on either side of them or it could have ended so differently. We're all thankful for that. Thankful for you sharing your story with us this morning. Well, thank you very much for listening. Great. Marek, is there anything else we should mention? Well, maybe, you know, one more lesson. In my case, it would have been definitely useful for people who operate these LSAs, for FDOs, people who rent them out. It really is important when you rent it to a general aviation pilot to stress that these are very different airplanes and give some tips as to how to fly them that would have avoided perhaps some of that trouble. Certainly if somebody told me don't land on the threshold, I wouldn't have. I uh, generally tend to listen. So just to stress, you know, given the accident statistics, if you are operating an FBO, you have this kind of an airplane and the guy like me shows up, just spend half an hour or an hour talking to them. And to your point, um, not landing on the threshold, and especially in light sport aircraft or most GA aircraft, it doesn't give you any buffer on the short side of that. And it makes obstacles more in play than they would be if you had a longer touchdown point. 
why not just take out all that out of the picture and pick a touchdown point, you know, 500 to 1,000 feet down the runway, especially if you're doing it at night, especially if you don't have any kind of glide slope support coming in. It just seems like a great idea. And that's that, you know, for me. Very good. Well, Marek, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Well, some great lessons from Marek's night flight in an LSA. And uh, we reinforced it a couple times, but uh, not to be taken lightly if you're moving to an LSA coming out of a heavier aircraft. The potential for a visual illusion at night is definitely there. I like where Marek said he can't rule that out. He doesn't think it was the issue, but he can't rule it out. And a dark night with no glide path support or indicators, you really can't rule that out that somehow he got much lower than he thought he was. And then a very good discussion about your aim points or your landing points. You know, if you're flying in the backcountry or flying on short strips, then uh, sometimes you need to be able to put it very close to the threshold. And that's very carefully monitored with great precision. And that's why no matter where your aim point is on a runway, you want to be precise with it. You may decide to land 500 or 1,000 feet down the runway, but make a decision. It is going to be at exactly 500 or exactly 1,000 feet. It's going to be at the front of the fixed distance marker or the back or the rear. So wherever you choose to aim, choose a precise point so you can always be flying the airplane exactly where you want it. An aiming point that's 500 to 1,000 feet down the runway, especially at night, especially when you have no glide slope backup, Pappy or Vazzy, just makes an awful lot of sense. And it sounds like Marek came away with that big lesson learned for him. We're thankful for Marek sharing his story, some great lessons learned. Thanks for joining us on another edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.